Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, successful entrepreneur and philanthropist Larry Gilson, whose resume includes working in the White House for President Jimmy Carter and Amtrak. Larry shares how he found his activist voice as a college student in the turbulent 1960s. So I was very active in advocating for the creation of a black studies center on campus, active in the anti-war movement. I was ultimately the student body president, and I saw that as a vehicle to have a little more standing to get heard. As a young man, he set a goal of working in the White House for a Democratic president. I think you have to be prepared to really throw yourself into it. It can't be a hobby. You have to be in earnest about it. And that level of intensity and focus, almost always in my experience and observation, it has to be multifaceted. You have to be doing things on multiple fronts in order to accomplish some central and serious objective. Once there, Gilson welcomed every chance to do more. The answer was always yes. It was never a question of should I do it or shouldn't I? Have I already, is my plate already full? It was going to be absolutely I'm going to do it. And then I'd figure out how to do it, how to fit it in, how to add it on, how to balance things out. Now your guide for Cracking the Code, Sudhir Ispahani. Larry, great to have you on the show, Cracking the Code. Thank you for joining us and being our guest here. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. You've had an incredible ride in this world, uh, both on a professional and personal basis. I'll start a little bit on the personal side. Take us back a little bit to your early childhood days, uh, where you grew up, how mom and dad shaped your thinking, and how your uh, various elements of your career evolved. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents had two kids, two, two sons. We moved from Cleveland to Los Angeles when I was in uh, middle school grades. Although I can remember various things related to snowball fights and, and sledding experiences and, and skinning my knee on the bicycle, uh, that kind of thing when I was uh, uh, in Cleveland, my, I really think of myself as having grown up here in Los Angeles as a practical matter. When we moved here, it was a total change from my prior experience. I couldn't quite work out exactly why we were doing it, or what Los Angeles would be like. I had no uh, notion of it. And in fact, I'm a little embarrassed to say that this is in the late 1950s. I, I, I wondered whether Los Angeles had paved roads uh, and, or whether everybody was going to be living in adobe uh, huts, uh, you know, in the, on the, leaning on the shady side of, the, of, the, of their, their homes, uh, you know, uh, occasionally shaded by a palm tree or a cactus. I really had no idea. Uh, other than maybe some occasional movies, what L.A. would be like. And, um, and so it was a pretty significant uh, kind of exposure to what felt like a new world. Mm -hmm. and, and the world of Los Angeles that I uh, arrived into was a rapidly developing, I now appreciate, city with huge energy, mm -hmm. uh, dramatic influx of people, um, a early um, influx of a range of immigrant populations, and and we lived in a in a mixed neighborhood, which was good, um, and uh, so it was racially mixed. It was uh, uh, economically mixed. And we we lived in a, in an apartment, and and our neighbors in the apartment and the surrounding area were quite diverse. Uh, 
uh, and it was really my first exposure outside of kind of um, basic um, kind of leave it to beaver suburbia, I guess you'd say. As my schooling continued, uh, my parents were very, always very active in the community. Uh, my mother was regularly the president of the PTA. My father uh, was active in chairing some nonprofits that dealt with at-risk youth or, or kids with challenges. Being Jewish growing up, the Jewish community was tended to be very socially alert, at least the part that we were connected to. By the early 60s, this goes back a long way, I think dinosaurs were still walking the earth when, during the period I'm describing. That was an active period, the late 50s and early 60s, in the civil rights movement in, in the United States. And, and so I was interested and, and as involved as a, as a kid could be. Uh, in in that I was uh, uh, observing picket lines. I was kind of on the periphery of what was going on and interested in, and and inquisitive about it. And the discussions at home were were very, um, I guess you now I'd say policy oriented and political. Mm-hmm. They weren't sort of just social daily life kind of stuff. Uh, there were active and healthy arguments and debates. Um, I think my mother was constantly uh, horrified at the level of, of the volume uh, and, and, uh, and the level of passion that was uh, involved. She was participating in it, but I think she, she had a, a notion of kind of family amity, which was maybe a little more tranquil than, than my, brothers, my brother and I and my father engaged in. And uh, in any event, that, that um, exposure and, and early involvement certainly continued into my college years. Now, my college years were the peak of the anti-war movement, mm-hmm. uh, the peak of the women's movement coming on, the introduction of, uh, of uh, drugs on campus, the challenges of, of, of the Russians invaded Czechoslovakia, Woodstock occurred. It was the 1960s. I was pretty heavily and fully involved in all of that, really extrapolating from what I'd done mm-hmm. earlier. So uh, I, was, I was quite active in, I'd say, the macro kind of social and political dynamics uh, that the country was engaged in. I think for the people who were in college during the latter half of the 1960s, which, which was my era, there was really it was a it was a profound and, and searing experience. I don't mean that in a negative way, mm-hmm. but it still is. is uh, those were periods of kind of seminal uh, experience, observation, mm-hmm. and challenge. Whether it was the um, assassination of Bobby Kennedy, I I was at the Ambassador Hotel when he was he was assassinated mm-hmm. uh, as a as a college student, mm-hmm. uh, or the death of Martin Luther King or the anti-war movements on campus. I was active in the anti-war movement in California. Mm-hmm. Or otherwise, uh, th- these, are, these were seminal ex- life experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure the combination of those plus my, my family upbringing uh, led me to and continues to lead me to be uh, looking at things with a reasonably broad lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I think it's influenced my professional and personal life since then. That's at least a launch, a, a, the, the launch phase. I don't know whether we've reached takeoff velocity yet, but uh, that's, that's some, of the, some of the starting experiences. You know, it's fascinating to hear you uh, 
share a little bit about being part of those life experiences, uh, those times which were very, very interesting and powerful, shaped many people's thinking. And yet today uh, we're also living in some very interesting times. It puts a great sense of focus in what somebody wants to really do with their life. How did you come to the conclusion with all that stuff that was going on during that time that you need to do something with your life and uh, you eventually want to be thrust into the world of leadership? And of course, you know, you look back on your career, you've been a phenomenal leader, very successful, all of that. But clearly that was not the way you started. Take us a little bit through that journey of leadership. Well, it's never linear. And and it's never a situation where I think you can say uh, that you can you can you set out to uh, go from A to B to C to D and onward and 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 that things played out exactly as expected. There's a huge amount of serendipity involved. I think where we where we grew up, how we grew up, the circumstances, what our life experience was, how we've related to other people along the way, how they've related to us. All of these this amalgam of of things which are unique to each of us inevitably uh, are central to the to the question of how you evolve as a person and and how you how you uh, live in the world Um, and um, well I was a scholarship student in college um, and uh, I always had jobs uh, to earn money Uh, my parents weren't poor but they they didn't have a lot of extra capacity to fund things beyond uh, providing us with a wonderful education through through high school and did what they could thereafter. But so I was a scholarship student arriving at a small college in California in 1966 and was almost immediately involved in the collection of things that I alluded to that were going on on campus in, during that period. I saw a, a mix of students who were there. There were some who were had a lot less as a starting point than I did less in terms of uh, educational background, uh, resources, uh, life experience. Uh, and there were also people there who were very entitled. I think because it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a public university, I went to Claremont McKenna College. Uh, it was then called Claremont Men's College, about an hour east of Los Angeles. It was still receiving a fairly high percentage of its students from wealthy prep school backgrounds, and it's, it's always a mistake to overgeneralize, but there was a representation among that, that fraction of the population of folks who felt really good about themselves, and one way to say it is that they were born on third base, and when they managed to make it all the way home, they thought they'd hit a home run. I'm not sure that's, that's quite the perspective. So there was a, quite a diversity in a relatively small school of starting points and circumstances, and so I was, for whatever reason, I was actively engaged in trying to address and advocate for uh, those who, were, who didn't come from an entitled place, didn't have the resources. So, so I was very active in advocating for the creation of a black studies center on campus. Uh, I was active in the anti-war movement on campus. I was ultimately the student body president of, of the college, and I saw that as a vehicle to have a little more standing to uh, be at least get get heard 
So it wasn't, it wasn't really um, kind of a look at me aspiration, but rather what tools could be available if, if, I, if I went down that route that might be uh, useful and effective beyond what would have been otherwise available in the absence of, of getting involved in, in what was pretty small-time student leadership. College was a transitional period. By the time I graduated from college, I already had strong desires to go to Washington, D.C., and for reasons that I can't exactly explain, I had this notion that I really wanted to have the goal of working in a White House for a Democratic president. How I would go about this was not remotely obvious. Uh, I didn't know what it what it, it would be involved. I really couldn't have told you exactly what the job of working there would have entailed, much less the path of getting there. But it was an it was an ambitious personal challenge, with a uh, kind of a extreme extrapolation of the notion that if I could get there, I thought I could probably do some useful things. So when I was applying to graduate school, I gave priority to applying to school to to. Well, I ended I ended up going to a, to Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which was in Washington D.C. And I, and I chose that among other options that were available because it was in, in Washington. So I packed up my, all of my worldly goods. I got on an airplane. I'd never been to Washington, D.C. before. I got off the airplane at Dulles International Airport. I had my two suitcases. I think I was wearing like four sets of clothes or something because I had, I, there was only so much you could pack. I, so I had all my stuff, however, whatever my stuff was at the time. I took the airport bus into downtown Washington, and before getting on the bus, I stopped at a newsstand and bought the Washington Post. I don't think I'd ever seen the Washington Post before. I'm on the bus going downtown, and I see, uh, I'm reading an article on the front page about a a fellow named John Gardner, who um, had the day before held a press conference to announce the formation of a citizens' lobby organization called Common Cause. And I'd read... uh, uh, some of John Gardner's books on leadership. I think he's the single greatest clear thinker and writer on the subject of leadership I've ever known or read any of his works. So I'd, I'd already been exposed to his writing. I'm reading this article. It's a fascinating um, organization that he's about to start or has just announced the intention to start. And so I get to Washington, and the next morning I call him on the phone. Who does this? This was kind of crazy. I, had, I didn't know better, so I called him on the phone, and even more crazy, he answered the phone. So I introduced myself. I say, I'm this, I'm this kid from Los Angeles who uh, just saw this article in the newspaper, and I've read and admired your books. I've been active in various kinds of organizing activities in, in California. I said a few words about what it was, and I, I said, I've, I've come to go to graduate school, but I need a job uh, to supplement the scholarship that I had for graduate school, and um, is there any chance he's looking for help? He says, well, why don't you come around this afternoon and let's talk about it? So, so I'm, I'm in Washington for one day, and I'm sitting down with the former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, the former head of the Carnegie Foundation, the founder of the uh, National Urban Coalition, uh, and the new head of Common Cause. Of course, this happens to everybody, right? Um, and uh, but when the interview was over, he offered me a job. So I, I, I became, I think, the, I don't know what it was, the fourth or fifth employee of this fledgling organization. I never called him John at the time, but, but uh, Mr. Gardner was, uh, became a fantastic mentor, professionally and personally. It was, I mean, imagine 
the opportunity to work as closely as I did in that formative stage of this organization with such an extraordinary person. If you know a little bit about Common Cause, you know it grew very rapidly, became quite a prominent citizens' lobby. It, was a, it, was a, it, was, it became kind of a megaphone for average citizens to have a voice on issues that tended to um, uh, conspire against the average person. Um, uh, and it, and it, it really concentrated on four areas of, of uh, access and accountability, uh, which were open meetings laws, uh, conflict of interest legislation, campaign finance laws, uh, and lobbying reform. Um, and that was the original agenda. Uh, the organization had 100,000 members within several months, and uh, Mr. Gardner asked if I would help think through now what what, what do we do with these members? You know, we, it was a membership organization from the beginning, but but people were channeling their own aspirations and thoughts about what might be accomplished through this this vehicle, and it was a bunch of uh, of uh, spontaneously activated um, uh, citizens who who had their own ideas of what Common Cause was. What, what their role in it might be, you know, what the agenda should be, and we needed some consistency. And so I ended up writing a, a book on, on these four uh, reform topics that I, I mentioned uh, called Money and Secrecy, and, and John Gardner wrote the introduction to it, which was an amazing honor. That was uh, kind of the codification of what this membership organization would do in the 50 states and at the national level on these themes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, it was an incredible learning experience uh, uh, on many levels, and and was kind of the, was my first professional experience, really, uh, and my first uh, profound exposure to public policy, the all the cross currents that go on in government, in, in uh, between government and, and other sectors, um, and it, it really crystallized things I'd been thinking about and reading about and hearing about, but it gave me a sense of immediate connection to those things that have really profoundly influenced my actions and my point of view ever since. So that, that was wel- welcome to Washington. You know, so, I was, so I was going to school full-time, uh, I was working full-time, and I got married that year. So it was very restful. Um, and, um, and then I had a series of other other um, jobs thereafter that that ultimately uh, helped me to be uh, positioned to to accomplish the the goal that I had an inchoate goal that I had named for myself uh, when I was still in college in California. Very interesting to for our audience to really understand uh, your thinking and your impetus and your motivation on how you sort of led that plan, if you will, for your life. So with the goal in mind, we get, then we get around to, like, is it realistic? And, and even if it's ext- extremely on the outer edge of what's possible, what are the practical things that you can do? You have to be, I think you have to be uh, prepared to really throw yourself into it. it. It can't be a hobby. You have to be in earnest about it. Um, and, and, and that level of intensity and focus um, uh, almost always in my experience and observation, certainly in my life, has to you have to, it has to be multifaceted. You have to be doing things on multiple fronts in order to accomplish some central and serious objective. Uh, through a series of steps, I became a, a, a director of a small federal commission uh, after working at Common Cause and after an intermediate stop. And the commission was focused on federal, state, local relations. 
So this is the answer, trying to address the question of with almost every government program, the federal, state, and local governments are all involved in one way or another in addressing the topic. They do a very poor job of coordinating among each other. There's lots of conflict, there's gaps, there's inefficiencies, there's uh, recriminations one versus the other. And this commission was a permanent commission attempting to rationalize and suggest practical ways to uh, remediate that dynamic. So I was a, a, one of the directors of that commission. Uh, I became a friend of a Washington a columnist for the Washington Post named Neil Pierce. And Neil wrote a regular column for the, for the Washington Post and syndicated nationally on this very topic, the issue of federalism, as he called it, which is federal, state, local relations in, in, a, in the kind of government structure that we have. Mm -hmm. And so he and I became friendly, and I would, I would suggest um, column ideas for him and be a source of information and, and, and feedback on things that he was writing. And he, he was then, I think, the most prominent columnist who was regularly writing on these kinds of topics. So that was one kind of stream of activity. In 1975, a friend of mine who I had met when he was doing his Ph.D. dissertation on Common Cause became the, the research director of the Democratic National Committee. So in the run-up to the Democratic Convention in 1976, he was responsible for drafting the starting point, the draft of the Democratic platform for the 1976 convention. He asked if I would do a bunch of the drafting. He had a lot, of, a lot of things to do. So I took on that task. And so I did early drafts of reasonable-sized hunks of the domestic side of the platform in its early phases. And when it became clear that uh, Jimmy Carter was likely to be the nominee, it seemed like a good idea that the platform draft be something that he could, be, he could live with. And that created an early exposure for me through my friend at the Democratic National Convention to be starting to relate to people on the Carter campaign staff. So this was progress, especially if he happened to be the nominee and he happened to win, right? Um, and, uh, and then after the convention, so, and I was doing other things related to the run-up to the convention as well, and, and actually both parties. I was clearly a Democrat, but uh, I persuaded, uh, it happens that in 1974, was the only time that there were mid-year conventions of both parties. These were basically um, sort of team building and advocacy events to bring the network of, of activists of whichever party it was into a national convention. And, and they had a kind of a platform process for those things, and there were hearings held. And I persuaded both the Democrats and the Republicans to invite the commission that I was connected with to testify at both of those conventions. So... This was, I think, both substantively useful, but also it gave me exposure to both conventions and the people who were running them. So all of these kinds of things were going on, and I was looking for opportunity. So then, after President Carter became the Democratic nominee in, in 1976, the focus shifted. Every night, I volunteered for the campaign doing briefing papers on wherever either Carter or Mondale were going to go the next day. Now, this is pre-internet. It's pre-personal computer, right? It's pre-practically everything. It was at the era when if you were going to fax something, you had to call up and ask them what type of fax machine they had, what was the technology, so that you could have a compatible machine to send and receive this, uh, this, this communication. Group three, group four. Exactly. So, so, every, so every day from the uh, nominating convention through the election in November, 
I would get uh, a phone call saying uh, the, prim- the primary place that Carter or Monday were going to go the next day was wherever it would be. And that night, after I got home from work, I would prepare briefing papers on, that, was, that were then sent to the campaigns by fax by the next morning. So basically, I wasn't sleeping. Uh, but this was another way to both help the campaign and also to um, become better known. So Jimmy Carter wins, and um, now he's populating his administration and his White House staff. Because he'd been a governor, he appreciated the, uh, the, di- the challenging dynamic between the states and the federal government, and he decided he wanted to give more priority at the, in, at the White House level to improving that situation, and he combined two functions. Uh, the intergovernmental function, that's the vertical function, and the horizontal, which was the cabinet secretary role. So he wanted the co- there to be active and conscious coordination between cabinet departments on presidential programs that have been implemented, to be implemented, and the federal, state, local connection to make that all synchronized more effectively. And he named uh, a fellow named Jack Watson to help head that combined role. Jack had been the chairman of his, the largest government department in Georgia when he was governor. So Jack was uh, secretary to the cabinet and assistant to the president for intergovernmental relations. Well, Jack started looking around for some a staff that would help him in these two overlapping areas, and he called Neil Pierce, the columnist. And he said to Neil, I'm looking for somebody with a certain kind of background and, uh, and whatever capabilities inter- intergovernmentally. Do you have any suggestions? And Neil, to my everlasting thanks, recommended me. So now I've, I'm sitting there with Jack in the White House. I'd never been in the White House before. Uh, being interviewed, uh, but with this nice sort of starting introduction, and Jack thought I'd be a, I guess thought I'd be a good candidate, and said, "Well, did I know anybody in, you know who could vouch for me who had from the campaign side of things?" Mm-hmm. Well, by then I could name some people because of the work I'd done in the run up to the convention and afterwards. So I guess I passed muster. So I got the job, and here I am. There I was, working at the White House. All of these things. In, a, in, in combination, created the conditions that made it possible to end up achieving a goal. And so here I was. I had no connections before any of this. I was a scholarship student from L.A., a Jewish kid, you know, with no particular advantage other than a good education. And only in the United States, only in the United States, I think this is true still today, would it be possible for somebody without any particular advantage, to end up uh, working for a president of the United States and having the opportunity to be both helpful and having some nominal level of influence on the most important decisions that, were, that are made. Uh, and I've never forgotten it. I've never, of course, but I, I frequently think about how extraordinary the circumstances are that make it possible for somebody like me to be in that spot and have both the honor and the opportunity that's connected with it. Very fascinating, uh, Larry, to to hear that journey. Uh, clearly, those seven, eight years, I mean, there was a level of intensity and drive. What were some of those unique things you learned from that that time that sort of shaped your thinking on what it takes to be a good leader, to have a drive in yourself, 
to be motivated to do things, to to follow through on stuff. You were off very young back then. <laughs> yeah, back then as opposed to now. But uh, I got married reasonably young. So Kathy and I were married one year out of college for me and just after she graduated from college. Mm-hmm. She was totally supportive, completely on board, an extraordinary sounding board, advocate, and source of energy and encouragement. That's an incredibly valuable and wonderful dynamic that, that continues today. And so her, I don't want to say permission, but her support and encouragement in a way made the rest of it possible. I think that was particularly true because I threw myself totally into these things. There was no question of if there was an opportunity or, or to do something, to do an extra thing, to gain a little more exposure, to uh, take on an additional task. The answer was always yes. It was never a question of should I do it or shouldn't I? Have I already, is my plate already full? It was going to be absolutely I'm going to do it. Uh, and then I'd figure out how to do it, how to fit it in how to add it on, how to, you know, balance things out. I think I had a level of personal drive in the sense that I was driving myself, that's what I mean by that, that inescapably was was central to doing the galaxy of things that were all kind of underway, some combination of them yielding the the success against the this sort of crazy ambition. I wasn't really in a leadership position. I mean, I, yes, I was a director of a of a small commission, and I, I, I had employees and responsi- you know, responsibilities for oversight, but, but I, I don't really think uh, that I had, uh, I would say, significant leadership experience, for, meaning managerial uh, experience, or where I was building teams and mentoring people and, and uh, helping them embrace a, an overlapping mission until actually after I left the White House. I was in a staff position, as we all were, in, in, in the White House. Yeah, I had a few people who worked for me there as well, and I was parts of teams. I wasn't really the ultimate accountable party for outcomes that involved meaningfully large numbers of people until after I left the White House. It was really then that I started to be active in in management and what I think you and I would take to be leadership in a recognizable form, aside from being an advocate and trying to catalyze behavior on the parts of others, but more peer behavior rather than uh, hierarchical organizational responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that all came after, after the, 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 White, the White House years. And I always enjoyed it. I, uh, you know, this is, there's a limit to what you can accomplish on your own. It's pretty obvious. And so if you're, if you're trying to build sustainable impact, you need to build sustainable institutions. And so really, from the time I left the White House to the present, I've really been in the institution-building mode, building teams, putting in place organizations, uh, thinking about how to be successful, what success meant for a group as opposed to me individually. And that's really characterized my activities over the uh, succeeding uh, 40 years and more. We'll come to that phase of your career in a minute, but just to uh, come back to one or two thoughts that you had shared earlier. You talked a little bit about mentors, starting early on with with John Gardner and uh, his leadership thoughts are uh, well-recognized in the world. Can you share a little bit about what some of those unique 
opportunities were for you to pick up nuggets of wisdom, learnings that sort of you inculcated uh, and, and adopted yourself in your own style. Let me m- mention a few things that are directly traceable to, to John Gardner. So by the time I met him, he was a, a, a widely recognized and acknowledged leader in many ways, and a, a thought leader, uh, a, a, a leader in public policy. He was the, I would say, the first person I met who I would now say was the embodiment of a public servant in the best possible uh, meaning of that term. So at one level, sort of observing and modeling his, his behavior and his thought processes was a rare opportunity, mm-hmm. something that I tried to be conscious of at the time. But then he translated that into things that were, that were applicable in my own experience. For example, he had a practice that he dedicated one day a week, every week, to thinking. Thinking. Not doing, but thinking. Okay? So here he is. He's an extraordinarily busy guy with all kinds of connections. He's on various corporate boards. He's on nonprofit boards. He's founding a new organization. He's in the public press. He's doing all this stuff. And he defended and set aside one day a week, every week, to think. He would go into his office. He was at the office. He would go into his office. He would close the door, and he would think. Okay? Thinking is actually underrated as an activity. People are so busy doing things and reacting to circumstances and being buffeted by all kinds of external forces that, that, there's, that they don't do a lot of thinking. And I think actually people these days do less thinking than they used to do because it used to be if you were in your car, you were driving somewhere and you didn't have the radio on, you, you had an opportunity to think. It was quiet. If you were on an airplane, you could be flying across the country, you could have five and a half hours of thinking time, right? I still take a yellow line pad with me on my briefcase every, whenever I fly anywhere, my backpack or whatever I have, because I actually find the quiet time on a plane to be very helpful. I look forward to the opportunity to think about things that I can't think about in one-minute bites and make any progress on. So here's John Gardner. He's sitting there. I'm sitting like uh, two offices or three offices down from him, and, and I know he's in there thinking. You know, I, He's not sleeping, that's for sure, and it's not like the door's closed all day. And occasionally he would augment the personal thinking. In fact, fairly often, he'd have a a lunch guest. Mm -hmm. So this was in the days when there were TV trays. I don't know if you know, these are are metal trays. People people had TV dinners, and they'd sit in front of the TV and watch TV and eat dinner. Probably a bad practice. But uh, so he had two little TV trays in his office. And at lunchtime, on the day he was thinking, he often would have somebody come in, and, and there would be a couple sandwiches, and they would sit in two chairs. He would sit in uh, one chair, which was actually, the, if you're in the if you're in the cabinet, you sit in a certain chair in the cabinet room in the White House, and your chair has your name and the uh, if I remember it has your name, but at least has the name of the cabinet department on the back of it. When you leave the cabinet, you take the chair with you. It's a memento. So he had his cabinet chair in his office, uh, and he would sit in that chair, and his guest would sit in a a facing chair, and the two of them would sit there and have a conversation. Well, it was pretty remarkable. I'm still a kid, you know, new from California, and I always wanted to be positioned so I could see who was showing up for lunch. Well, it was uh, Ralph Nader one day. It was uh, a Supreme Court justice another day. It was a United States senator. It was a Nobel Prize a winner another day. These were people who were trooping in and out of our offices 
week after week who were having conversations that uh, you know with with John Gardner every week. So so the concept of protecting and defending time to think is still something that's I think important. Um, I'm not nearly as good or as disciplined about it as he was. I cannot successfully defend an entire day for thinking, but I do try hard to not get overly booked with meetings, Mm -hmm. and I I still try to have time if at the office or elsewhere when I can step back and I can can think about things in a more strategic, contextualized way. That's paid rich dividends for me through the years. Uh, Another thing is that he was an incredibly effective communicator and writer, especially when I was writing the book that I alluded to that, you know, that was a really a, a kind of a call to action by Common Cause that ultimately got distributed to all the Common Cause members and what have you. I was conscious of the fact that I already knew he was an extraordinary writer, and here I am writing a book that, that you know, at, at his, basically at his request, that, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I, this, this better be good, you know? I made every effort to, to have it be not just substantively useful, but good, clear writing. And this built on, I think, the main benefit I got from my education, which was a, a, some uh, reasonable capacity to communicate in written and verbal form in a clear and cogent way where the sentences actually hold together and you can, get, you can, you can, you can communicate an entire thought without wandering off the reservation, you know? Not that he edited everything that I wrote, but the standard that he set and the editing that he did do and the advice that he gave me on, on crafting the message and communicating it was very valuable and in every realm of life since then. The ability to communicate in a clear and cogent way is, is I think, the single most important tool that is applicable in any walk of life. The absence of it is a severe and possibly irredeemable handicap. That's another take away from his mentorship. And then finally, of course, is just the mission, you know, that he had, mm-hmm. which I learned more about and, and, and embraced um, enthusiastically. And then, and then I, one of my best friends in life shared a windowless office with me in our early days at Common Cause. There were three of us in the office. My, my lifelong friend, a good friend at the, at the time who was quite hard of hearing, so he was yelling all the time. And we were yelling back at him uh, and, and, and the Xerox machine. So, the, so there was the three of us and the copy machine were in there, which is actually kind of a good humbling thing because, you, you, you know, you realize I don't really need a window office here. I, you know, uh, that, that, it, those, the, the superficial stuff, the trappings are not, not why I'm sitting here. So, mm-hmm. so all of that were takeaways from that seminal experience and that, and that mentorship from, uh, from an extraordinary, extraordinary person. And then, of course, that propelled you into the White House. And uh, that had its own set of learning opportunities. Share with us, if you will, a little bit of of that uh, key milestone and what that really taught you and set you up well for uh, the next phase of your life. Well, the White House is a, is a point of, provides a point of view that's um, not duplicated anywhere else. And, and so you, you, you see a lot of moving parts, uh, both in the government and, and, um, and, and across the country and, the, and as a whole. And I was, I was really only on the domestic side. I, I'm sure if I'd been active internationally, I'd have a, yet a broader, broader view. 
Having a, a chance to observe and interact with players who are coming from different points of view, from different uh, institutional perspectives, to understand kind of the agendas that they're bringing to the conversation and, and, and what are kind of drive, what's driving their behavior, uh, to get a, a, a chance to gain some insight into the process uh, by which things actually get done, mm-hmm. not just discussed, but actually get done. That afforded a, uh, really a unique opportunity. And, and, um, and the diversity of topics with which we were dealing was so extraordinary that, um, and it was impossible to be expert on all of them, that you develop there um, a capacity to acquire, assimilate, synthesize, and apply information in ways that help you to make decisions and helps you realize that all the information, that all the inputs on any important decision that you make is going to be incomplete. Okay, so it's 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 sort of nice to realize and practical to under, understand. This isn't a theoretical exercise. You are going to make a decision, or you are going to offer your best possible advice on a deadline, with whatever you have available to you at the time. Now we had lots of resources that we could draw on from there, obviously, but those resources were not um, always objective. In fact, they were never objective, uh, and they were never complete. To be able to understand what you've got to work with and, and how solid it is or how instable it is, uh, and therefore how much confidence you can assign to the, to the conclusion that you're reaching, and then to apply that judgment in the best way possible, that's not something that's limited to a White House perspective. That's life, right? Uh, but in, during the crucible of those years uh, where so much the stakes were so high, uh, and with, especially with a president who was so demanding, legitimately demanding, but seriously demanding, and detail-oriented, where you constantly expected and frequently it was demonstrated that he knew more about the topic that you were briefing him on than you knew yourself, and he'd read everything that you'd written, and he had questions about something in the middle of page five as the plane is landing, you know, in, in a city where he's going to speak to that topic, um, the the incentive to do your best possible work was about as high as it could possibly be for every possible reason, right? So that's one piece of piece of it. Another thing is the ability to not that I'm demonstrating it today, but the ability to boil things down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 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 one currency that's most in in scarce supply uh, in the White House is time. Um, and time with the president, and the president's time is an incredibly scarce and valuable commodity. So I had the opportunity to travel with him on quite a few of his, his trips around the United States. I, I, I was involved in the production of the briefing books that he used uh, when he traveled in the United States uh, after he was president, as well as uh, helping in the period when he was a candidate beforehand. There were times when he would, he would, um, he had the briefing book. He probably didn't have much time to look at it till certainly no earlier than the night before the trip. And he's probably, he's reading it on the plane. And you're an hour out of Kansas City and the plane is, you know, we're in, we're, we're in landing mode, or half an hour out of, out of Kansas City. And he would come, he'd come back to the back part of the plane and I'm, I'm sitting there and, 
and often he was seeing, going to see somebody else, but when he would come in, in my direction or we had a question where I could answer, he, it would be a question of, often a question of fact or interpretation about something that was in the, in the book that I'd prepared. Okay, so I, I not only had to be accurate and be clear on what I knew and didn't know and, and communicate that, but I had like a minute to do it in, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going through a mental uh, editing process in real time to try to uh, distill the essence of what would be most useful to the President of the United States during, and you're going to respond to that uh, in the moment, mm -hmm. right? And then he's going to take that as reliably provided, and he's going to act on it with real consequences, right? right? So that focuses the mind for sure, right? And it, and, you, and it developed the skill to sort through what's really important and what's not important. You know, earlier today, I was at a meeting downtown, and I was watching the clock. We had an hour, um, and it was a pretty important meeting with high potential in the philanthropy area. And we were 50 minutes into the hour, and there were three or four things that hadn't come up yet that I wanted to cover. So instead of having 10 minutes on each of those things, I had like two minutes on each of those things. And the experience that I've just, I was describing of years ago was directly applicable in boiling this down to the essence of, of the matter. And that, that has so many different applications. You know, um, uh, I, was, uh, I, I, I was sometimes on, uh, on interview programs on television when I was in, on, on the White House. So I was on what was then called the McNeil-Lair Report uh, a number of times. And that's another example of where you, have, you get asked a question, you know ahead of time certain things that you want to cover, you want to answer the question, but you want to deliver the message in as crisp and efficient and as effective and accessible a way as you can, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and that just, that, that's true throughout life, you know? And if you can be effective, you're going to be more confidence-inspiring, uh, you're going to be more credible, and you're going to be more successful. Yeah. So those are some White House generalizable lessons. There were a lot of other things that were a lot of fun and a lot of challenges and a lot of frustrations and a lot of joys, but, but those are some, some, some examples that carry application thereafter. I'll say one other thing. Yeah. Um, having worked there was provided real currency. The fact is that nobody who doesn't work there really quite knows what goes on there. And by the way, the, the White House staff was much, much smaller then than it is now. There were probably 20 people on the, on the policy development side and maybe 20 people on the policy implementation side. Mm -hmm. That was it. You know, there were other parts of the organization, but, but you know, now I think it's, it's, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, so that currency, that, the credibility, aside from the reality, just the fact of, of having been there, is obvious, obviously created opportunity, uh, which, which um, made possible things that happened later, naturally. This is a great segue into the next part of your leadership journey, the real-life uh, stuff that you've done in the, in the world of business and private equity and, of course, most recently, uh, philanthropy. So take us through that journey, and thank you for sharing those very valuable insights, on, uh, which would be great sources of thoughts and uh, wisdom for our uh, audience. Well, so when I, when I left the, um, the White House, I went to work for Amtrak. Um, I was uh, a vice, initially vice president of government affairs of, of Amtrak. 
And I was attracted to Amtrak because one of the things that I, I liked about President Carter is that although he, was, he clearly embraced what I would call the democratic agenda, in other words, there were certain objectives that he wanted to accomplish for the country, and he thought that the government had a role to play in, in accomplishing that. But while he, he embraced the objectives, he didn't necessarily embrace all the implementing tactics. He didn't necessarily think that a large federal, federally managed and directed program was necessarily the best way to accomplish the goals. He didn't abandon the goals. He just was challenging everybody, including himself, to think about what are the array of ways in which we could go about meeting the goals. And so there were various hybrid things that, that he did. And Amtrak, in a way, was a hybrid organization. It was a federally chartered corporation uh, whose mission was to provide inter inner-city rail passenger service in the United States. Well, that's fine. That's a national objective, not uh, replicated by the private sector. But it was done through a corporate structure uh, where there would be different types of, of corporate discipline and structure and and, and uh, uh, organization that could be brought to bear in a way that might, might yield a more effective outcome than if the federal government itself just ran the railroads. So I went to work for Amtrak and encountered um, my second important mentor, uh, luckily. He happens to have been another cabinet, former cabinet officer. I seem to have collected uh, Lyndon Johnson cabinet secretaries because uh, uh, John Gardner was in Lyndon Johnson's cabinet and so was Alan Boyd. Uh, Alan Boyd was the first Secretary of Transportation. That department was created when, in, in the Johnson years, and, and Alan was the, uh, the first Secretary. Another incredibly accomplished person. He had he, uh, been the president of the Illinois Central Railroad. Uh, he was uh, an ambassador uh, who negotiated the international air agreements that still define the, um, uh, the ground rules by which uh, uh, international carriers relate to each other and to the countries where they take off and land. He'd been the chairman of the uh, Civil Aeronautics Board. He was the head of the Florida Public Service Commission. The list goes on. I reported uh, to him, and, and that, that was the genesis of, of an, another extraordinarily powerful and wonderful relationship. But whereas John Gardner has passed away, uh, Alan Boyd is still a close personal friend of mine. I spoke with him on the phone a few days ago. He's 96 years old. Uh, living in Seattle. Um, we have political discussions often. Uh, he's great. So, um, but that was the first time when I had, I would say, important frontline responsibility where I was the senior person responsible for uh, significant uh, organizations and outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one responsibility was that I was responsible for persuading the Congress to approve an operating subsidy for Amtrak. No national railroad in the world operates at a profit, uh, and, and that's tr certainly true in the United States. Um, and I remember the first um, uh, budget that I was responsible for um, uh, defending uh, was the first year of the Reagan administration, and I can remember exactly the number that the Reagan administration proposed as a budget for subsidy for Amtrak. Uh, it's an easy number to remember. It was zero. We knew that we needed a billion dollars, a billion dollars, to run another, have another year of national, the National Railroad. And so that was, that was my goal. Uh, that was my objective. I needed, I needed to, get as, to get as close to that as I could. And I inherited a, a team of people who had, had already been in the, in the government relations department uh, that I led. Um, and there were people in other departments that were providing key supporting roles um, as well. And so I, I had to develop and implement a strategy to interact with the Congress and the administration to try to address this need, which was 
kind of an existential requirement for Amtrak. Without that subsidy, Amtrak couldn't exist. Um, having inherited a team of people, I had to figure out where was the strength in the team and, and what could I do to augment where necessary to help to strengthen incumbent people and to, and to augment the team as required with, with others. But mainly the former. I, could, I couldn't, we, we, had, we didn't have the luxury of starting from scratch. We had, a, we had an existing pressing need and I had an existing team, right? And so, um, so the challenge there was to, was to understand the strengths of each of the players, to be practical about what they could do, uh, to be motivating, uh, to be clear and to give, uh, to be decisive, to, be, to give direction where needed, but also to be respectful of people who had a lot more history in lobbying on behalf of, of Amtrak than I had. I, I had never done so, you know. That was the first serious managerial challenge uh, that, I, that I faced. I'm sure I was very ineffective in, in trying to provide leadership and direction. But largely, I think, because of the team, the, we got a billion dollars from the Congress. They, they appropriated to the dollar what we said we needed. And that was the last time that the Reagan administration proposed zero, by the way. They never proposed what we, what we, what we wanted and thought we needed, but they never, they never did anything as radical as that, uh, proposing anything as radical as that again. But one of the things that became clear early on was that the conventional way of thinking about providing uh, uh, other sources of income supplemental to what the, fair, the, the traveling passengers were paying for uh, wasn't adequate. We had to think more broadly and more strategically. Mm-hmm. We couldn't keep going back to the Congress. You know, I couldn't go up there every year and give the same speech. Please give me another billion dollars, and I'll be back next year for another billion. You know, mm-hmm. That's not a winning strategy over the long term. So we challenged ourselves in the, in, the, in the department and beyond to think more strategically and to figure out what we could do. And, and the result was a decision to advocate that the company diversify its revenues. We built a plan. We had a little skunk works that I was able to protect a little team to work on. And, uh, and I went to Alan Boyd and I said, you know, um, we're going to continue to be advocates for uh, congressional appropriation, but I think we should we should diversify into other businesses that leverage assets that we have within Amtrak that have not been seen as assets. They've been seen as cost centers or hassles, but that I think could be converted into, into sources of income. And, and if we do that, we can subsidize or and offset what we need from the Congress through the appropriation. So he became an advocate for this notion, but it was an, an unconventional proposition. I had to think about it from a risk mitigation point of view. Mm-hmm. What could go wrong? What kind of publicity problems could it, could it cause? Where are the resources going to come from? All of that. So together, Alan and I refined the plan, and we went to the board and said, hey, here's a, here's a vision of what we think we can, we can accomplish. And the board approved the plan, but with a few stipulations. Number one, they said I had to run it. I didn't get to give up the government affairs responsibilities. This was incremental, right? Um, I couldn't lose any money, and they wouldn't give me any money to start, okay? And we needed to start businesses that would be profitable from, the, from day one. So that was the challenge. This was my first real exposure to uh, the dynamics of trying to operate a profitable business. I, if, if you think about my history up to that point, I'd never... I'd never been, I'd never run a profit, I'd never tried to run a profitable business. 
And so anyway, in a moment of weakness, I said I would, okay, I'll do it. I'll try it. But you have to give me the real estate department as well because well, railroads have a lot of real estate and Amtrak had, had uh, owned the most real estate in the northeastern corridor of the United States of anybody. And my thought was, well, I could sell some real estate if I had to. I can generate cash from doing that. And that can be my war chest to fund some of these other businesses. That was the simple-minded notion, right? But without going into all the gory details, we ultimately launched uh, eight or ten profitable businesses. Um, we, we made the, the, the real estate department more of a profit center rather than just kind of a management of asset cost hassle activity. Um, we, um, uh, and we generated uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of supplemental uh, income uh, in ways that navigated through the unique status of Amtrak and the con- challenges of operating where we had private sector competitors in some cases and would be vulnerable to the challenge that we were competing unfairly, while at the same time being successful profitably and not losing any money. And so we built a whole department around that and tried to energize the organization overall in order to uh, see opportunity where previously they'd seen like cost centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that I, I think, helped to result in some rethinking of the organization as a whole. Um, and the scorecard was pretty straightforward. We, you know, we, we, I committed to success, mm-hmm. and my team knew that the challenge was high and that we weren't going we to slacken our efforts. We weren't going to be unsuccessful. The only question was, how are we going to be successful? And we had to pick our shots and choose w- w- where to use our limited resources, human and financial so that was that was a really fantastic but very challenging exposure to to the thing and and along the way, I recruited some wonderful people into the organization who subsequently populated the senior ranks of other parts as well. So one of the guys who I brought in who was the same close friend of mine who I referred to when I worked at Common Cause uh, became my deputy at uh, in the government affairs department at Amtrak, and then he became the vice president of planning and then the vice president of marketing. Uh, and a, another fellow who had worked um, for Senator Javits uh, uh, back when there were moderate Republican uh, senators from New York, uh, Senator Javits uh, uh, had this, this young guy was uh, was on his staff, and I recruited him uh, in as well. And he's had a fantastic career both within and 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 much beyond Amtrak ever since. So it was possible to bring together a cadre of people, some inter- internal people who I knew through the years, and some from the outside. Um, and uh, finding the talent and helping to develop it becomes a, a real um, uh, exciting and, and uh, rewarding experience, as, as you know perfectly well. So that, so that was, that was uh, my Amtrak experience. Uh, I left Amtrak uh, with, the, with Alan Boyd. Uh, he, he resigned as chairman and president of Amtrak, and I resigned as VP of various things, at Amtrak to, uh, to found a private company to build high-speed trains in the United States. Um, you may know there, notice there aren't any high-speed trains operating in the United States. Um, so um, that was a startup, an, an entrepreneurial enterprise, very challenging. Uh, we committed to pursue that without any government subsidy at all. We came very close to building a, a, a high-speed bullet train between L.A. and San Diego, which I wish we had now as a, as a commuter on that route, often by car. Um, and, uh, but, but the experience was not successful. So 
you learn from you learn from that as well. By the time that became unsuccessful, my wife and I had three young children. I had no income. I had to I had to find a way to make a living, and I leveraged the Amtrak experience, which was really looking for hidden assets and finding ways to build on those and diversify uh, the revenue sources. Um, uh, that became the genesis of starting a consulting firm that that um, concentrated on advising other large capital-intensive industries that were moving away from monopoly com- uh, status into market competition mm-hmm. to be uh, to be to learn how to be to operate in a competitive world. And the proposition that I offered to these companies was, uh, I've I've helped to do that at Amtrak. Uh, we found these these cost centers and turned them into profit centers. And we put people in charge of each of those small businesses within the under the umbrella of the parent entity, mm-hmm. and they gained a lot of competitive uh, experience in running businesses that they then can apply on a bigger scale to the parent company. Mm-hmm. And why don't we work with you to to try to do the same thing at an electric at your electric company or gas company or phone company? And that was the original proposition that that got me into the consulting world with these large corporate uh, clients who we served at the CEO, CFO, or, or board level, helping them uh, understand the, what, what was coming by way of uh, market competition and what their strengths and weaknesses were, how they could succeed, and how they could really transform themselves mm-hmm. into different types of enterprises than they'd ever had to contemplate before. Mm-hmm. So, that, so I did that for quite a few years. Uh, we built up the business to the point where I believe it was the largest uh, independent uh, strategic consulting firm in the country focused on uh, regulated industry clients. I sold the business. My two partners and I, who I'd recruited into the consulting business, the three of us, we were always equal partners. We did different things, but we did things that were complementary. We could finish each other's sentences. And if any one of us made a commitment on behalf of the firm, there was never any second guessing of that. We all had total confidence in what the others would do. This was, I think, the strength of our business from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it continued when the three of us uh, founded an um, investment firm through which we uh, uh, became principal investors, a private equity firm. It wasn't called private equity then. They didn't have a, it didn't have that name. Uh, we built up that business, had, had reasonable success, and then, and then sold the franchise to a much larger multi-product uh, uh, money management firm in 2009, uh, at which point um, uh, I, uh, although I stayed connected to the to the investment activity, mm-hmm. and continued to advise the firm, and many of my proteges are now uh, running the, running the, the firm, which is very satisfying. Uh, I was able to turn my attention to other things, and prominent among those has been has been philanthropy. Coming to the tail end of it, this is the piece I would like you to spend some time on, uh, just sharing a little bit about your vision for focusing philanthropy. I'm a very big believer in in that vision, as you know. It's been a privilege to actually hear you speak and see the organization in operation, and thank you for allowing us to look under the hood. But for our audience, it would be fantastic for you to share your, what I would call in the business world, we would call it the investment thesis, the very famous saying of why why this, you know, and how. And uh, if you can just give us some thoughts on that, that'd be great. The sale of the franchise of my investment firm um, uh, that was, in a sense, a liberating event. Yeah. It gave it gave me some more some more money, honestly, but also more time and the opportunity to think in a more systematic way, uh, among other things, about how our own family could be effective philanthropically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd been in the conventional mode that many people um, who have the resources to do it 
uh, engage in, which is we were writing a lot of checks to various nonprofits. But honestly, at the end of the year, if you asked me what, what we'd achieved by those, um, I wouldn't be able to confidently catalog the results. Having spent so many years building up and running an investment firm where we had a system and a process and a structure and real rigor in, in evaluating different investment opportunities, uh, in choosing among them, in overseeing the resulting investments, and then in managing the disposition, I realized after looking around for a while that I was really seeking an equivalent resource in the philanthropic world to what I'd created and led in the investment world. And I was surprised, in fact, for a while I couldn't believe it, that I wasn't able to find many organizations that had the attributes that I was looking for that were available to support the decision-making of people who wanted to be more thoughtful and effective in their own charitable giving. I asked among my friends who were similarly situated, well, how did they deal with this problem? And, and they had a similar lament. And the result was that eventually I concluded I wasn't going to find what I was looking for. And it has happened a few other times in my life. I said, okay, I'll create this. And that became the genesis of focusing philanthropy. So we are essentially an adapted version of an investment firm. The basic premise is that just as uh, investors have certain expectations on uh, the level of uh, rigor and information flow and the scorecard that they expect from investment managers, uh, the same expectations should be available and satisfied on the philanthropy side. So what we've created here at Focusing Philanthropy is the type of team that I built and, and led uh, in my investment life. So we have a mix of expertise. We have people who I would have hired in those days, in my investment days. They have backgrounds that are deep in financial analysis, in, uh, in organizational assessment, in strategic thinking, and come from different backgrounds. So that's one type of person. Another is a, is a person who, who's been a frontline provider of program services to the types of constituencies that we hope to serve here philanthropically. Other people come from backgrounds relating to investors from a client service point of view. So from different angles, I've tried to assemble a diverse team, diverse both in background and diverse also by age, life experience, point of view. And, and what we do now here is we, uh, we're trying to build a philanthropic portfolio just as in my investment life, we tried to build an investment portfolio that had reasonable diversity within it. But all of the initiatives are, and all of the programs we engage in are delivering life-changing human impacts at scale where the dollars that are contributed are, highly, are achieving a highly leveraged consequence. So to do that, we can apply many of the lessons from my investment life. So this is a terrific personal experience to repurpose, in a sense, all of my prior professional experience, to bring it to bear on something that's very personally satisfying and potentially impactful. What my prior life taught me is that you need system and process and repeatability uh, in whatever you do if you're going to have an institution, if it's not just going to be, you know, like one charismatic woman and a dog, you know? Um, and, um, and when I talk about building a system and, a, and process, um, the philosophy I've always tried to employ is you want to hire A players. You always want to try to hire A players, 
but you have to be prepared for the fact that you're going to end up with some B players. What B players need is a structure that allows them to be successful, even though they may not be able to have independently navigated all of the challenges. They can still, in a context, they can be as effective as anybody. And I like to think we have A players here across the board at Focusing Philanthropy, but, but it, if we want to build an institution that can grow and prosper, you can't assume that you'll always be able to recruit and retain A players. So what we have here now, um, we've been doing this since, publicly since 2012, is that we have a team that is continuously searching for compelling, life-changing giving opportunities that are susceptible to private philanthropy. Some things just take the government to do. The scale of the challenge or the response is not, doesn't lend itself to individual philanthropy at a scale where you can really make a difference as an individual. But, so we're looking for those things that, where that is possible. We uh, screen many, many organizations in order to arrive at a view of what we think is a first-rate group. We present uh, curated giving opportunities that part, wherein we're partnering with these uh, implementing nonprofit organizations that we embrace as partners. And we uh, offer these investment opportunities, because we think of them as investment opportunities on the philanthropic side, to a growing number of uh, individuals, families, uh, privately held companies, and some larger corporations that, that are active philanthropically themselves in order to help achieve a higher degree of impact than they might have achieved on their own. Uh, we don't charge anybody for anything that we do. My wife and I cover all the costs of our activities. So it's, it's a friction-free relationship so that our motives are never second-guessed. We have only one motive, and that is to try to improve the lives of more people through a collaborative effort with like-minded supporters. Mm-hmm. This is what we've been doing uh, now for, uh, for several years. We've enjoyed year-over-year growth in the number of people we've been able to help, the number of donors who use us as a resource for a part of their giving, uh, the number of dollars we've deployed, uh, uh, all of these kind of metrics and measures. And given my background, you're not, probably not surprised to hear that I, I have a scorecard that, you know, that, uh, that we rigorously uh, maintain and, and, uh, and assess. Uh, those are the things that give us the motivation to really apply the rest of uh, the experience that all of us here have had in our prior lives to a highly motivating uh, goal uh, that's very rewarding. I think one of the revelations in the, that people who are active philanthropically have is that the more you do, the more, you, the more satisfied you are, the more you enjoy what you're doing, and the more you want to do it. And that certainly is our behavior and our experience and my own personal uh, feeling each day. And the impact you've had been quite significant from the numbers you were sharing earlier, just uh, the global impact you've had on with some of the projects you've been working on? Well, we've had some good success, um, uh, and uh, we've, we believe that conservatively estimated, we've, uh, we've profoundly and positively changed the lives of over 600,000 people globally uh, and are rapidly approaching a million people. Uh, one little example is that um, we've, um, uh, we've made it a priority to fund um, site-restoring eye surgeries around the world. Uh, and um, we've funded over 37,000 surgeries. So there's over 37,000 people who can now see who were blind uh, before we were able to help them. Uh, that's the conservative estimate. 
but each of those blind people had a family member, or maybe more than one, who were dedicated to the care giving of a relative, usually a parent or a grandparent. Mm -hmm. And it's almost always women and girls. Mm -hmm. So when we restore the sight of a man who, in Nepal who can go back to farming and can be a productive contributor to his family and his community, we're also allowing his daughter or granddaughter to go back to school or to craft her own life. So I would say that for every person whose sight rest we restore, there's an, at least one more person who we're helping. We're not counting those people in our, in our scorecard. So, uh, so the impact is large and, and profound. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, there's always kind of a tyranny of large numbers. Um, the, as we talk about large uh, numbers of people we're helping, um, it, it gets harder and harder to visualize that group of people all standing out in a field together somewhere or to visualize what it looks like, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I remember when we first um, started to get to some scale, um, I used to say to people here in Los Angeles, I asked them if they'd ever been to the Staples Center. This is where the Lakers and the Clippers play basketball. And they, most people would say, yes, they'd seen a game there. And, and I'd say, well, that stadium... Uh, we holds maybe about 15,000 people or something like that. And, and that's how we could fill every seat with people whose sight we restored alone. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, I'd say, well, okay, visualize the Staples Center. Now we're, we're spilling out into the parking lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, and, and, uh, and then we're rapidly approaching filling Dodger Stadium, 56,000 mm -hmm. seats, just with people whose sight was restored. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't count the other people in other programs who were, were helping. Uh, one, one other example where the largest numbers are is that um, over half of the world's extremely poor people have one thing in common aside from poverty. They're farmers. Mm -hmm. They're farmers. They live on little pieces of land that have probably been in their family for hundreds of years, uh, and they're subsistence farmers. They grow their food. Uh, they harvest it. Uh, and their family eats 100% of their crop. And they frequently run out of food before the next harvest. Mm -hmm. And in many languages, that period, when they're slowly starving, is called the hunger season. And that's their life. And they're just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. um, well, we work with a fantastic program uh, that's found simple ways to triple the agricultural output of subsistence farmers. Uh, throughout Africa, large parts of Africa. Um, and we play a unique role here with them mm -hmm. in that we fund the geographic expansion of that program into new geographies. Mm -hmm. we've, they started in Kenya, and we funded their expansion into Tanzania, Uganda, Malawi, Zambia, mm -hmm. and we're now working to help them expand into Nigeria and other parts of Kenya that they aren't already serving. Um, and over the next few years, on the trajectory that we're on now, conservatively estimated, uh, we will be, the, the countries in which we've helped launch, there will be about six and a half million people who will be permanently out of starvation poverty. Well, that's pretty motivating. Hmm. That, you know, that gets you into the office in the morning, hmm. you know, and that hmm, gets yes. you out, on, out in the field to try to uh, uh, recruit additional supporters who share the vision once they hear it, hmm. and who Almost always when someone joins our group of, of, of donor supporters, they continue to support us 
and their support grows over, over time because they see the results. Uh, and um, whether it's domestically or internationally, uh, those are the, the life-changing impacts that are possible. We can do this. And, and, and the challenge is not one of capacity. The challenge is one of application of the capacity that we have in an effective, uh, confident, and sustained way. And that's, that's what we're, we're trying to help others uh, well beyond our own family accomplish. It's a phenomenal vision. And, you know, just having had a small part in it, hearing you talk and uh, meeting with your team, I'm very, very uh, always energized and, and very motivated. Uh, philanthropy is also at, uh, uh, <clears throat> tugs at my heart a lot, as you know. And uh, I'm really wonderful to see you at work on uh, especially using your your past skills <laughs> in uh, in reality and helping other people uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on this show Larry and uh, just want to close with one one uh, question for you what would you like your epitaph to be what would you want people to remember you by I think I still have a lot of years left <laughs> but um I hope that uh, people would feel that um, I've taken the opportunities that I have and I've applied them in a way that's achieved good, that other people have benefited, my family and way beyond my family, have, um, have, a better, have more opportunity and, and a better life uh, than they would have otherwise had. If, if anybody says that, I'd feel a sense of fulfillment. You sure uh, have impacted many a life in this world, more than probably people will be able to come and come forward and say that is the value of somebody who's giving. And I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to have gotten to know you. And thank you again for being on the show. Final thoughts from your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Sudhir, Larry Gelson, when he was a young man, he wanted to work in a White House. Yeah. And he did. He worked for Jimmy Carter. It's an amazing story about how he, he stepped into Washington the very first day as a grad student at Johns Hopkins and ended up being interviewed and hired very quickly by this legend who started this huge organization common cause larry is uh you know as as you know we the the podcast interview was uh, was fairly long with a lot of incredible insights and history and detail and all of that but uh you know we start off with really uh, again one of those common themes of very early on you start setting your eyes on certain things and larry was a good example of that he really wanted to get to the White House and jumped on a plane in his college years and showed up in D.C. and you, you hear the story of him jumping in a in a bus from Dallas Airport, picking up the Washington Post, and then seeing an article about Common Cause and then calling the senator or uh, the leader who was back then was John Gardner, and literally getting a job 24 hours later. Gardner must have been impressed with that focus. Because I can only imagine how this, this, this man who had just started, founded, and had just announced the creation of Common Cause, everybody knows what it has done and what it meant at that time and, and still does. But 
it was brand new. It was just a name then. Didn't have employees. And Larry became one of the first ones because he saw the newspaper article, made the call. And Gardner had to have been impressed with that, which brings home the point that you can't impress people. They will become your mentor if they see your ambition yep. and see that you have the tools and the drive. You're spot on when it comes to uh, Larry's focus, his curious mind, his drive, his desire to really get to the White House and get the experience early on. Young people listening to this need to know, how do you find that mentor? Mm-hmm. I think Larry is a good example of that. You just you just call them. <laughs> yeah. Some of my biggest mentors are people I just called and we just took a walk together you know as a young man maybe when I was even 13 and they gave me good advice that I followed he again um, is a person who leads with his heart and as you know he's running uh, he founded uh, focusing philanthropy and you know he's had a phenomenally successful business career and uh, you know he's now applying his business and his government uh, experiences to real life and impacting people globally. Well, it's nice to know when you donate a dollar that that dollar actually has the impact of maybe $10. It just gives you more confidence and more reason to give, and that's what he does. He takes this expertise that he developed in working in the White House, working, developing Amtrak, and then in his consulting business, and applies it to philanthropy so that it just enhances and compounds the giving, which is brilliant. Yeah, you're right on. This is one where uh, you, we could have gone on with Larry for another few hours, uh, you know, but I hope it'll be of great value to our listeners to, to hear the insights and the learnings from Larry Gilson. <laughs>